Amen. Well, as we kick off our, I believe, third annual week of evangelism, our event we call Real Life Big Questions, what we want to focus on is exactly what we just read, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says he delivered, what was of first importance. Our lives, our eternity are built on the hope of the gospel. So, over the last few years, last three years, I believe, going back to 2020, we've taken some time at the end of each summer to, to do this event. Um, again, we call it Real Life Big Questions. We take on some of the questions that the world may ask of us as believers, as followers of Christ, but it's also questions that we as believers may be asking of the Scripture because the Scripture then builds into our lives and we are conformed to Christ as we search out answers to these things in God's Word. So today, this morning, we decided to kind of, kind of just gently wade in to the event with, with real life and big questions. And the question that we want to ask today is, eternal punishment in hell fair? So we're not really wading in. We're diving in head first because our eternity... The, the eternity of our souls is at stake in what we believe about Christ and what we believe about eternity is of utmost importance. So we're going to dive in and consider this idea of eternal punishment in hell. Um, to do this, we kinda, I'm going to kind of take two paths to do this. This will be more of a topical message um, in nature because of the nature of this question. It's kind of it's one that's hard to take a single passage of Scripture and answer the breadth of, of what we need to consider in the idea of eternal punishment. So if you will, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. That will kind of be our, our focus point in a little bit after we kind of take some time to set up Scripture and what does Scripture say about eternal punishment. Then we will dive in and consider the terrifying judgment of God. We'll see how God's judgment is indeed fair, and it is indeed terrifying. Hebrews chapter 10, I want to read verses 26 through 31, and then we'll ask the Lord's help and blessing on our time, and then we will dive in. I'll ask if you will, please stand with me as we read God's holy word. Hebrews chapter 10, Verse 26, this is the inerrant and inspired word of God. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing fall into the hands of the living God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now let's go before the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you and we do praise you for you are great and greatly to be praised. What wonderful love you have displayed at the cross where Jesus Christ, your son, took our sin upon himself and bore the penalty of that sin so that we could be free from what your word shows us to be eternal condemnation. Lord, what a savior it is to be able to bear eternal wrath in space and time. What a perfect and pure and spotless lamb that was given to bear the sins of many. 
Lord, as we consider your judgment and your condemnation toward those who are not in Christ, I pray that at the same time we would see the glory of the Savior. Lord, help us to understand the value of Christ. The spotless lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pray that there, if there are any here who do not know Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit you would breathe life into dead souls. That you would show them their desperate need for your saving grace and mercy that is available in and through Christ. Lord, for those who are in Christ, I pray that considering this judgment... I pray that it would spur us on both to walk more closely with Christ but also to proclaim Christ more often. Lord, I pray that we would be urgent with the gospel because eternity is at stake. Lord, I pray that we would have humble hearts that are ready and eager to receive and apply your truth today. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in power among us as we're gathered. I pray, Lord, that we would see our sin and that you would grant us repentance. I pray that we would see the the severe response that you have toward those who do not know Christ. I pray that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, I ask for your Spirit's help, both as I speak and as we listen. Lord, as we listen to your truth and your word, I pray that your Spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in all that we say and do for the rest of our time together this morning and for our gathering tonight and over the next several evenings. We just desire to make much of Christ, to make Christ known and to, and to show him as glorious and high and exalted and lifted up. So Lord, would you be with us today? Would you help us to glorify you in all that we say and all that we do? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we set out to answer this question, again, this is going to be a little bit more topical in nature and, and more evangelistic in, in nature than what would a, be a typical Sunday sermon. So I want to take some time to kind of introduce this idea and how we might would go about defending the idea of eternal punishment. It's a topic that many, even those within evangelicalism, struggle with. There are those who would be considered faithful saints that don't believe that the Lord sends sinners to hell for all eternity. They believe that souls cease to exist, and that is how the Lord hands out punishment. And quite frankly, that's not a biblical idea. But I want to kind of just set out kind of a course of, of, of how we would go about answering this question, maybe if you were in a one-on-one -on -one setting with, with an unbeliever or someone who was questioning whether or not eternal punishment is real or if it's fair. And firstly, as we consider that, our primary tool must be the Word of God. We cannot answer such a question with human philosophy. We can't answer such a question with science or reason or any other invention of man. We must go to God's word. If we try to reason through the fairness of eternity in hell, what we would end up doing is reaching about an infinite number of different conclusions because everybody will have an opinion. And if we don't have a set standard, the set standard of truth of God's word, then everybody is going to bring an opinion to the table and we will get an infinite number of answers about what is fair. 
The Bible proclaims and defends its own authority. So when you set out on a topic like this, it must be, it being scripture, must be your baseline, your grounding, what you are rooted in. Consider 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is God's word, and it's profitable, Paul continued on there, for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is God's word, and as Second Peter would tell us, in scripture we have all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. All doctrine, all truth, all instruction that we need is in scripture, and we must start with that baseline whenever we consider a debatable topic like the one before us today. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 say that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. All of God's word is God-breathed, is God-inspiring men to write as he so chooses and so wills. Now, many will argue with you, and many will debate you about the veracity of Scripture, but on the authority of Scripture, we must stand. On the truth of Scripture, we must stand. You can go reason and argue with someone until you are blue in the face, and you will not make progress until the Lord opens their eyes to the truth. Because all men, all people will have their own version, their own idea about what is fair. So we must start with the baseline that Scripture is God's word, it's God-breathed, it's true, and it is authoritative. Then we must also consider the fact that God is indeed the sovereign creator of all things. We, We go back to this idea of God's sovereignty because it follows reasonably after the idea of God as creator and as as sovereign that he is the ruler that he is the head that he has all authority over his creation he is even the judge of all things because he created all you think about Genesis 1 1 this is really kind of a, a simplification in a way in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning God created. Nothing existed. There was triune God existing in perfect unity, and and nothing else was around the Lord, and he created. He created the heavens and the earth. He spoke, and there was light. He spoke all things into existence. And since God created, God is the authority. Jesus was also seen to be as a creating agent of the Lord. John 1 verse 3 says that all things came into being through Jesus, through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This is critical. It's critically important to understand that all authority is found and summed up in God because he is the creator. He has all authority. He has all sovereign right to rule and judge as he pleases. The thing that is made cannot and does not ever take authority over that which created it. The the clay does not say to the potter, why have you made me this way? But rather it is the potter that has authority over that which he creates. It is God that has authority over that which he has created. It's God's world. It operates under his rules and under his authority. So we have God's authority through his word. We have God's authority and his sovereignty over his creation. And then we must consider his eternal nature. His nature that has and will exist for all eternity. Being eternal is part of that nature. The Lord is unchanging. He never shifts. He never moves. He never changes. He is eternal. He has always been. He will always be. He has always been the same, and he will never change. His standards never move. But his eternality is just one attribute. It's kind of a summary attribute, if you will, but it's only one attribute. The Lord is also holy. He is, as the angels would say, holy, 
holy, holy. Holiness defines and it animates, it gives life to every attribute of God. He is holy in his wisdom. He is holy in his righteousness. He is holy in his justice. He is holy in his mercy. He is holy in how he shows grace. He is holy, yes, indeed, in his wrath. If we could simplify the Lord's holiness down, it's really kind of the great grandiose attribute of God. But if we could simplify it down, what we could say is that it means the Lord is is other, that he is different than us. And specifically, this word drives to the fact that he is other and different than us in his purity, in his perfection. So it's not just that God is this different incomprehensible being but he is so pure so without sin that 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 he is different and other and that we cannot fully comprehend his his purity and his holiness following closely with that we can say and we can understand that the lord is righteous not only is the lord righteous but what god does drives and sets the standard for what is right again these are groundworks that we have to lay to answer the question about eternal punishment the lord is righteous what he does you can hear this what the lord does is the standard of righteousness It's not that there's this standard outside of God and and God meets the standard, but it's that whatever God does sets the standard of what is right. And again, tied to that idea is the fact that God is just. So he's holy, he is righteous, and he is just. That means all of his judgments are, are carried out in holiness and in righteousness and yes even in fairness god is fair god is perfectly just consider romans chapter 3 to to think about the justice the fairness of god verse 23 um, through verse 26 of romans chapter 3 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god that is that is our standing we have all fallen short But we're justified as a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just and the justifier in giving salvation to his chosen people because he displayed Christ as the payment for our sin. That is how God is just and the justifier. So whatever God does is fair. You get eternal life because you're in Christ, Or you get eternal punishment because you reject Christ. So again, we come back to the question. Is eternal punishment in hell fair? Maybe let's let's change that question a little bit. Is eternal punishment in hell biblical? Is it biblical? Because if it's biblical, if it's taught in Scripture, if God's Word says it, then it must be right and fair. So what does the Bible say about eternal punishment? Matthew 25, verse 46. This is Jesus speaking. He says, these will go away into eternal punishment. These who commit the deeds of lawlessness, who die apart from Christ. But, he said, the righteous into eternal life. So the unrighteous to eternal punishment, the righteous to eternal life. So what we see there is there's a one-to-one comparison about eternal punishment and eternal life. When you weigh the balances, when you look at what, what Jesus said, what you see is that they're the same thing, 
in how long they are carried out. Eternal punishment and eternal life. So if you have eternal life forever in heaven, the one who has eternal punishment is punished forever in hell. It's a one-to-one relationship. If a believer receives eternal life, the sinner, the condemned, receives eternal punishment, period. End of question, end of debate. However, this is not a one-off teaching. We can look at a few other scriptures, a few other sayings of Christ and of Paul to see that this is not the only time that this is said. In John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus said, An hour is coming, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come forth, and those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So this is speaking about dead being raised to life, to to face their eternal Reward Those who did good deeds, those who came to Christ in faith and repentance, they're resurrected to eternal life. But those who lived and walked and remained in their evil, they received the resurrection of judgment. So again, it's that one-to-one comparison that if eternal life is what those who are in Christ get, it is eternal, everlasting, ongoing for all, eternal, all eternity punishment that those who die apart from Christ receive. In Acts, Acts chapter 24, Paul even speaks of this. So this was not something that only Jesus taught. Acts 24 verse 15, Paul said there that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. There will be a resurrection from the dead to eternity of the righteous and the wicked. The righteous to eternal life, the wicked to eternal judgment. So again, come back to the question, is eternal punishment in hell biblical? Is eternal punishment in hell fair? Yes, it is. It's what the Bible clearly, clearly teaches. The Bible doesn't say that the saved go to eternity in heaven and the lost may go pay for their sin for a defined period and then they will cease to exist or or maybe they they fulfill God's wrath and then are moved to a, a holding area or even sent to heaven the bible doesn't teach that the bible teaches that God's wrath is eternal and that all goes back to God's holiness sin is an offense to a holy god and it's worthy of eternal punishment dear friends can we stop and think about that for a moment Can we stop and see the balances of the Lord that one sin is worthy of eternal punishment? It's because God is holy. So think about your life in light of that. Praise the Lord that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But think about your sin. Think about the fact that all of the sins that you committed before coming to Christ and all the sins that you will commit until the Lord calls you home, they had to be paid for. Your sins should not be taken lightly. And we'll get into that in in the text that we come to, the, the idea, the effect of willing sin. But we must understand that eternal punishment in hell is a real thing. It is a real thing. And now let's go to our text. It's been a long introduction. Let's go to our text and consider kind of the why. Because God does explain why he is just in sending sinners to hell for all eternity. Why and how, and he shows how terrifying that judgment is. And so in light of this text, what we must see is that we must have faith in Christ We must be washed in his blood. We must repent of our sins so that that we can be free from eternal judgment. Again, the text finishes that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. His judgment is eternal. His judgment is terrifying. We must come to Christ in faith and repentance. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, We'll begin in verses 26 
and 27 and consider the effect of willing sin. The effect of willing sin. The writer here states, If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But what does remain? Verse 27. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. If we go on sinning willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Dear friend, if you are in Christ, even if you are in Christ, that should be a terrifying statement because it shows the seriousness with which God deals with sin. Again, we, we hold on to that hope that we are not condemned because we are in Christ, but that should cause you to tremble. It should cause you to fear and to evaluate your heart and your life because you see how seriously the Lord deals with sin. So why such an extreme response? I think we can pull that out from the text. He, he begins by saying, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Willful sin. It, it is the wickedness and the hardness of an unconverted heart. Hear that, saint in Christ. Willful sin is a mark of a wicked and unconverted heart. So when you walk into sin willingly without putting up a fight, you are walking in the way of an unconverted sinner. You may not be unconverted, but you're living as one who is on the pathway to hell. That is a sin that is willful and intentional and deliberate. We can kind of understand this idea by by what is the opposite of, of willful sin. Um, this word speaks of that which is, which is not committed in a moment of weakness or not committed in ignorance. It's those sins uh, of the world where they just reject the authority of God. They reject the authority of truth. They reject the call to righteousness and just run headlong and headstrong into sinful behavior. They have a knowledge of the truth, but they reject that truth because they love their sin. So it's willful, it's deliberate, it's not sin that's in a moment of weakness. So that's again where we take comfort, where we take hope, and we have assurance of salvation because you may fall to temptation. All of us will sin until the day that the Lord returns, but we should never make light of that. We, we should never treat sin lightly, but we don't lose hope when we fall to temptation. But before the hardness of our hearts, the stubbornness of our heart, the remaining flesh comes up in us and, and leads us down a path that we should not go Let's remember that we have really very little excuse, really no excuse as to say, one, that we are ignorant of sin, or two, that we were, were weak and did not have the power to overcome sin. For the Lord puts his spirit in his people. The spirit empowers us to resist temptation. So when you are tempted to sin, you must stand firm and resist in the power of the spirit by the grace of of the Lord. We also cannot give the excuse that we are ignorant of what sin is. The Lord has given us all that we need to understand his requirements. Hebrews begins with that, that in former times the Lord has spoken through the prophets and in various times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us in and through and by his Son. So not only do we have the full revelation of Scripture to tell us what the Lord requires, but we have the perfect example of Christ, the perfect example of the God-man who shows us how to live, how to suffer, how to face temptation. We have all that we need, so do not weakly, feebly, hard-heartedly allow yourself to walk in sin. Because the Lord takes it very seriously. We're not left to wonder what God requires of us. 
The Lord takes our sin seriously. If you continue in willful sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There no longer remains a sacrifice. And that, again, should be terrifying. That should sober your heart and your mind to consider that Scripture paints this picture, and maybe it's a little bit obscure for our, our minds to understand that there's some level of this willful sin that then puts you in a category where there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Can I just come back and say, that should terrify us. It should terrify you. Now, there is hope. John six thirty seven. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and all who come to me I will not cast out the father gives we come and jesus will not cast you out there's always a sacrifice for sin for those who come to christ in faith so take heart but take heart with a sober spirit in john 7 37 jesus said if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink Jesus is the source of eternal living water. Come to him and drink. Come to him in faith, and there remains a sacrifice for your sins. But dear one, if you continue in willful sin when you have received the knowledge of the truth, the truth of the gospel, if you hard-heartedly remain in your sin, Scripture tells you there is no sacrifice. And that's not because the blood of Jesus is not sufficient. That's because the hardness of your heart overwhelms your ability to come in faith to Christ. So praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us to life and to grant us faith and repentance. This should highlight, I think, to us the important and the transforming work of salvation. That when we are saved, our lives change. We don't remain in sin. We don't go on in sin willfully or flippantly because there was blood shed for these sins. There was a sacrifice given to redeem you from the penalty of those sins. We must not continue hard-heartedly in sin. Let's see also right here that there must be a sacrifice, right? That there must be a sacrifice. We cannot come to Christ based on any merit of our own. We don't come and say, Lord, look at all these good things that I've done for you. Look at all the good that I have done to the world around me. No, there must be a sacrifice, there must be a lamb who laid down his life at the cross and bore the penalty and the punishment for your sin so that you can be free from that sin. But not only is there that payment made, but he had to live a righteous life because that payment only brings us back to net neutral, back to, to level ground. But we have to be made acceptable to God. Christ lived a righteous life so that righteousness could be credited to our account so then we could be seen as righteous by the Lord. So there must be a sacrifice. And friends, if you reject that sacrifice, all that remains is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Terrifying expectation of judgment. This is God's definition of his judgment against sin. This is not a man's opinion. This is God's opinion. This is God's declaration of how he deals with sin. And God himself calls it a terrifying judgment, a fury of fire that will consume. Eternal punishment is terrifying because in that very term, you see that it is eternal can you imagine being destroyed over and over and over again for all eternity? That's one description of eternal punishment is eternal destruction. 
But again, Scripture doesn't, doesn't say that to imply that, that your soul ceases to exist, but rather you are destroyed over and over and over and over again for all eternity. It's a terrifying judgment. It's terrifying. Imagine being consumed with fire, not for a week, not for a month, not for a thousand years, but forever, for decade upon decade upon decade, millions and millions of years. Dear friend, if you're in Christ, hearing of this terrifying judgment should put wind in your sail to go out and preach the gospel. Thinking about this judgment, for one, it should give you a heart that just overwhelmingly overflows with thanksgiving to the Lord for saving you. But then it should do something. It should send you out with this gospel message that is the only hope for the deliverance of souls from hell. So the effect of willing sin is that it puts a soul on a pathway to eternal judgment. That eternal judgment is described as being fury and wrath and consuming for all eternity. For the one in Christ, there's no condemnation. No condemnation now I dread. I'm in Christ. I'm his and he is mine. So there's the effect of willing sin. And then the writer gives us this example of the Old Testament law to kind of flesh out again how and why eternal punishment should be seen as fair, even from our human perspective. Look at verses 28 and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. Here's an argument from the lesser to the greater, from the punishment of physical death to the punishment of eternity in hell. We look to the Old Testament, God's Old Testament law. We see that, that one of the punishments that the Lord allowed for breaking of the law, and this was not just the, the breaking of the law in murder, but there were other instances as well where the Lord would require death. As on the basis of multiple witnesses, the Lord would not just flippantly allow us to go put someone to death because one witness would rise up. But on the basis of two or three witnesses, if certain laws were broken, that person was put to death. They were put to death. This is the Lord's law in the Old Testament. But now let's move from the lesser to the greater. If that precursor to the law and the covenant of Christ could require physical death, how much severe punishment awaits the one who rejects the Messiah? What might be the judgment of the Lord to those who profane and reject his son? Let's look at the description here, the description of, of what rejection of Christ looks like and why it is so costly. Verse 29 he begins by saying, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Trampled underfoot the Son of God. This is to walk over him, to, to spurn him, to, to treat Christ as that which is of no value and no worth, to treat him with insulting neglect. How much severe punishment than death do you deserve for treating the holy, righteous Son of God with this type of insulting neglect continues and he says also for those who have regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant to regard blood as unclean speaks of that which is um, impure or that which is common that which is defiled what punishment would await the one who treats the holy precious blood of Christ as that which is common or that which is worthless or defiled. It's a severe punishment, a condemnation for all eternity. Continues on, the third description at the end of verse 29 is a little bit of a different direction. 
It says, you regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. Insulted the spirit of grace. That is, I think, kind of the, the heart of our age. It's that prideful rejection of the truth, that prideful rejection of the working of the Holy Spirit. It's really what these things sum up to, to kind of show. It's that spirit of our age, the spirit of our culture that says not only can you not condemn dim sin, not only must you accept sin, but you must celebrate it. You cannot just tolerate it. You must celebrate it. It's that spirit of the age that just runs over the blood of Christ. It tramples on it. It treats it as worthless, as common, as unclean, and then it rejects and insults the Spirit of the Lord. When the Spirit moves in power, it throws off the moving of the Spirit because the hard-heartedness of the soul bound for hell wants to remain in sin. But Just because you are not that person, don't hear this then to let you off the hook. Anyone who rejects Christ is guilty of treating the blood of Christ with contempt. You must receive the blood of Christ as the payment for the penalty of your sins. If breaking the law of Moses required physical death, how much severer punishment is required by the evil, vile, wicked practices of the world? To understand God's holy wrath against sin, we must understand that bit of his holiness but we also need to understand the, the value of Christ. And we've talked about that a lot through the study of, of 1 Peter. The value of the blood of Christ. And you know, just thinking about how to, how to help wrap our minds around that. Um, no illustration, especially when you are trying to illustrate the worth of Christ. No illustration will, will be perfect. All illustrations will fall short. But think about, just thinking about Christ and, and his value to the Father. Think about if you had a precious family heirloom. And, you know, something that had been passed down through the generations of your family. It was of, of great value to you. It was so valuable to you that it really had no monetary value. Nothing could describe its worth. And you go give that to a friend. And they treat it as common. They treat it and they, they give it to their kids to go play outside in the yard with. Or they go throw it in the trash can. They give it to their dog as a chew toy. They, they treat it as common, as something that is not precious. So consider how you would feel about that family heirloom being treated with that level of disrespect. Now consider something, consider someone of infinitely higher worth and value, Jesus Christ himself. Those who reject Christ are rejecting someone of infinite worth. One whose precious blood is enough to pay for the sins of millions and millions of people. Consider the value of Christ. Consider profaning that blood. And then you start to understand why the Lord requires eternal punishment to pay for sin. Because the ultimate sin is the rejection of Christ. And the Lord's requirement for that sin will be great. So we've seen the effect of willing sin, the example of from the Old Testament law. And now let's look at the last two verses, 30 and 31, and consider the expression here of God's wrath. The expression of God's wrath. Verse 30. For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Old Testament shows us really many pictures of God's wrath, many pictures of his anger towards sin. I'll just give you a couple just to kind of kind of whet your appetite, to kind of give you a brief glimpse uh, of how the Lord responds in, in, in showing his wrath to people. Jeremiah 51 verse 56 it says, for the destroyer is coming against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men will be captured. Their bows are shattered, for the Lord is a God of recompense, and he will fully repay. He is a God of recompense. He will fully repay. Consider Psalm 46, 
Verses 8 and 9, Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. The Lord magnificently, gloriously, powerfully exerts his power over all creation. The New Testament also has pictures of God's wrath. Turn back to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, we'll read a, a few a few examples of the Lord's wrath, a few pictures, because Scripture can describe this wrath much better than we can. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 15, and then we'll look at Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, just painting a picture of God's wrath. Revelation 19, verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one except himself knows. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. He treads the winepress. That has kind of, I think, the picture of him treading out the wrath of God on the people. And flip over to chapter 20. Same verses in chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up its dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire thrown into the lake of fire that is God's wrath against sin it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God turn back to Revelation 6 we'll look at one more one more picture of this and then draw to a conclusion Revelation 6 this is the the unrolling of the seals the the seals and what we see in this sixth seal in verses 12 through 17 of Revelation 6 is a picture of God's wrath. John writes there, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave, and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us. And hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? When that great day of wrath comes, no one is able to stand. No one is able to stand but the one whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So ask yourself, is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? Am I in Christ? Have I trusted in Christ for salvation? 
Have I come to him in repentance of sin? Near before the judgment throne, when this great and terrifying day of the Lord comes, when his wrath is dispensed, what will be your answer? Will you give the Lord this list of things that you have done, these merits, these things that you have earned? Or will you fall on your face and say, I come only in the blood of Christ? Will you fall down and worship and say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and dominion and power forever and ever? Or will you stand up and tell the Lord, I did this. And I did this. I cast out many demons in your name. If that is your hope, he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. Maybe you give the right answers to those questions. Maybe you say, yes, I have come to Christ in faith. I've come to him in repentance. Well, what does your life look like? Are you willfully sinning after receiving knowledge of the truth? Do you fight against sin? What does repentance and transformation of heart really look like in your life? Are you just a whitewashed tomb that you say the right things but inwardly you're full of death and decay? Or do you have a transformed heart? A transformed heart will always ultimately lead to a transformed life? Do you joyfully forsake the things of the world and the desires of the flesh for the sake of knowing more of Christ? Or do you hold on to these things because they are what is dear to you? Do you love the desires of the flesh? Or do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? I hope today you've gotten a picture of the terrifying judgment of God. hope you understand that it is a wrath and a fury that will be poured out for all eternity. And you will receive it if you're not in Christ. And if you are in Christ and you hear this, if you are in Christ, I hope that this presses you more into Christ as your Lord and as your Savior that you see what punishment he bore in your place. Because that wrath had to be appeased. That penalty had to be paid. Either you receive it, or Christ received it at the cross on your behalf. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old things have passed away. The old desires, the old devotions, the, the old passions of the flesh are gone. You're a new creature. New things have come. So if you are in Christ, walk as one who is in Christ. Walk as one who is a new creature. Rejoice, dear friend, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Then go out from here and glorify the Lord in the way that you live. Go out from here understanding that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And go out armed and equipped with that and preach and proclaim and live according to the gospel of Christ. Do this by his power. Do this for his glory. And do this with all the strength that you have until the day that the Lord returns or until he calls you home. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But it's a glorious thing to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. May Christ be honored among us, his people, today. Let's close in prayer.